I'm Carla Ewert, and I'm the coordinator for the Open Network, and I'm a woman in ministry. So, as in terms of my role uh, for the Open Network, I'm the coordinator, which means I spend a lot of time doing, 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 and I think in part, um, I started doing coordinating to avoid uh, leading. I think I've always felt a pull to leading, and in some ways I felt that um, that was a bit of a, of a misbehavior. I grew up in a very conservative church. Uh, my dad's a pastor of a church that um, doesn't believe women should be in leadership, and uh, therefore whenever I, whenever I do that, I feel the, sort of a sense of misbehavior. So I keep myself busy with coordinating roles and, um, and uh, feel both a draw to leadership and also a fear of it. Um, and so I try to, when uh, I have the opportunity when I'm given opportunities at this point in my life, uh, one of my practices is to try to step bravely into those opportunities um, because I believe firmly that I have the capacity and uh, the qualifications and the right to lead in the church the same as a man does. And um, so trying to live into that practice is a thing I'm working on. Um, and doing the work I do with the Open Network and like here at the conference, working with um, the Women in Leadership track is one of my favorite things that I've done. Um, we're getting to kick this sort of women in leadership conversation off and I've, I've been able to be a part of that from the from the very beginning and get to shape it and get to use my leadership in this way to help bring women together and help us um, recognize our leadership skills together and that's one of my favorite things. So I think one of the the main things that I share in common with Carla's story is this um, natural gravitation towards coordinator roles. Um, being the person who makes everything run smoothly and kind of props up um, the actual work being done, the, the work of, of preaching or the work of pastoral care. And I've kind of started questioning, do I gravitate towards those roles because that's what I'm good at? Or do I gravitate towards those roles because I'm a woman and that's what I was always told I could do? So I, I wanted to open this up to you, Mira, and to you, Jen, and ask about how you kind of came into your role in ministry um, and into a more leadership position within that role. Mayor, do you want to start? Sure. I mean, um, I feel like this role kind of fell on my lap because um, I've always volunteered for, for children's ministry for as long as I can remember. And um, being a parent, I guess it, it's what made the most sense when the previous family ministries director left. And then in that position, I thought that's all I needed to do. All I had to do was that fulfill that role until 
I kept getting called upon for what my opinion was on certain things or or um, to say what I thought about something, write something for the blog, say something in front of the congregation. I said, hold up, hang on, that's a lot of responsibility. And I lack the confidence to do that, but I'm appreciative that um, that the leadership in our church recognizes that I have something a unique perspective and something different to offer and that my questions will be different and that there will be someone listening in the congregation that has the same questions too. About eight years ago, I spoke on a panel with Jeremiah Wright, who was at that point a very fiery preacher on the south side of Chicago at Trinity UCC. And uh, I was wearing what I thought was a very basic black suit, and it was, but I had leopard pumps with it. And uh, I was eight years ago, okay? And uh, yeah, I rocked it eight years ago. And uh, at, the, at the close of this conference, as I'm coming down off the stage, uh, a very prim, white-haired woman came up to me. And um, through a few purse lips, she said, um, Laura, I just want you to know that women of my generation wore sensible black shoes for many decades so that women of your generation could wear those shoes. And I love that. And I come back to that a lot. Because all of us, women in this room especially, we are standing on the shoulders of those who came before. We're standing on the sisters of those who came before us. And we owe them a debt. So I, I, that is leadership lesson number one. Remember the sisters who came before. But also, remember those who were in your cohort. Uh, another story, I was at a Red Letter Christian event a couple of years ago and I was rooming with two other women and one of them said, uh, you know, there's only room for one woman writer. And what she meant was one woman writer in this genre of literature, okay. But that comment really hit home. There's only room for one? That's scarcity mentality. That's a framework that I want to have nothing to do with. That's something that pits us against our sisters. So remember those who came before, but remember those in your own cohort, right? They're not your enemies, they're your pals. We're a cohort, we're together, we're sisters here. And then lastly, and it's the great uh, Sheryl Sandberg thing, remember those who are going to come after you. Uh, those of us who have gotten to some level of leadership, some level of authority, um, some level of a platform uh, where our eyes can look at the horizon a little bit, we got to remember those who are going to come after us and make sure we hold the door open for them. I am the Reverend Dr. Lindsay Andrioli Comstock, and I am a woman in ministry. Um, as a child, I had the benefit of growing up in a really affirming home. Um, as a young girl, I, about the age of seven, I uh, said to my folks that I wanted to be a missionary slash pastor. And um, so many stories of people being kind of uh, put off by that, their parents not affirming that. And instead, my parents, you know, absolutely let us know how we can help and being very affirming and happy for me. And um, so I grew up in an environment that um, saw women in ministry as not a possibility, but a reality. And I benefited greatly from that. Um, so as a woman in ministry, it's interesting to me that in my later years is actually where I'm encountering the most um, kind of adversarial or um, 
confrontational encounters with folks about women in ministry. Uh, I went up through seminary or college seminary, graduate school for my doctorate, and never really experienced a lot of pushback with me being a woman in ministry. Um, and now here I am in my in my later years, having uh, a, a good amount of ministry under my belt, and I'm experiencing kind of these microaggressions. Um, just to tell you a brief story, I, I recently did a, a conversation with a, a very established gentleman in, um, in, in Christian ministry. And um, it, it was interesting to me, he spent a period of time in our conversation basically making light of the fact that uh, I had ministry credentials, that when you ask for my professional bio, you get Reverend Doctor. And uh, I just found that very interesting that one would expose their insecurities about something like that, uh, rather than affirming or rather than simply ignoring the fact um, that that's a reality in my identification about myself. And so... Um, as far as women in ministry, I think the microaggressions, the, the, the sometimes the sexism that we're experiencing now later in life is not something I expected. So often the stories are, are from younger years and kind of coming up through that and blossoming. And instead, I'm having to find my sea legs as an adult, um, having always been affirmed. Uh, so... Um, I, I'm, I'm glad for uh, the wisdom of elder women who have come through those struggles and are able to offer me guidance and wisdom and a bit of compassion in the midst of that as people um, learn that there are new people at the table, that equality is such that um, we don't need to be intimidated by the fact that there are different people at the table now than uh, what used to be a table of only white men um, now looks very different. And so I'm grateful for that. Being kind of disrespected as a reverend doctor and how she is really insistent that people use her reverend doctor title because, yes, she is an ordained minister. And, yes, she does have a Ph.D. that she earned by the time she was 36, which I suppose is rather young. Um, And how, you know, male faith leaders disrespect that and she really pushes back on that. I think that's a good um, connection with what you said And I'd like to, I kind of want to circle back to this idea of ordination because you're right, in the evangelical church, we don't talk much about a call to ministry um, or really about ordination. Um, We don't use the term reverend a lot. And I grew up in the evangelical church where my pastor, I don't even know if he was, if he went to seminary or was ordained or anything. Um, It just came from working with other organizations and other churches of different denominations that I kind of came across this idea of a call. Um, and so when it, it was time to ordain me, I was kind of expecting that, wave your hand, my boss will print out a, a certificate that says I'm ordained and signed it and that's that. But he, Ryan Phipps, the lead pastor in Manhattan, who's my direct report there, insisted that I do it um, in a ceremony on stage on a Sunday. And I love being the center of attention, so I jumped right at that. I hate being the center of attention, and I did not jump at that. <laughs> Your sarcasm doesn't register. It doesn't. No, it do- I realized that after I said it that probably everyone was like, wow, you sound like a jerk. You love being the center of attention. Nope, I hate it. I hate it. I'm fine if I'm speaking about, like, an idea, but if it's, let's all pay attention and stare at Marley, not interested. Um, but I eventually agreed to do this kind of public ordination because I wanted to say something to the congregation and I wanted to say to them that God speaks to everybody and that God speaks through everybody. 
Whether you're a woman, whether you're gay, whether you're of a different color than the mainstream, the oppressed people are the ones that Jesus went towards, and those are the people that I think need to hear that the church values their voice. And mm-hmm. I was convinced of that, and that's why I wanted to do a public ordination. You give courage to to other women that that haven't gotten to that place, that haven't come to an understanding that their voice matters, that what they have to say what they have to contribute matters. By making that public declaration, you give them confidence to take that extra step further. Leadership, whether it's men or women, is theological. So we have to talk about the nature of God, who God is, and what God is. So I'm gonna let Thomas Merton help me, okay? This is Thomas Merton. Life is this simple. We are living in a world that is absolutely transparent and God is shining through it all the time. This is not just a fable or a nice story. It is true. If we abandon ourselves to God and forget ourselves, we will see it sometimes. And we see it maybe frequently. God manifests God's self everywhere, in everything, in people and in things and in nature and in events. It becomes very obvious that God is everywhere and in everything and we cannot be without God. You cannot be without God. We cannot be without God. It's impossible. It's simply impossible. So I uh, edited Merton because he refers to God as him three or four times in that quote. And he uses a capital H to refer to him, God. And Merton, along with a long line of Christian mystics, both modern and ancient, had a really gentle but solid grasp on who God was, who God is. Modern mystics like Merton and most of the ancients referred to God as he and him and himself. But I think they understood the limitations of language. I think they wanted to make sure we knew that God is personal. So you need a personal pronoun. God is not a thing out there. God is a personal being that we choose to worship, that we choose to follow, that we choose to believe is in everything and around everything. So we use he over and over and over. But to speak about God as he is theologically inaccurate and actually it's incomplete more than inaccurate. God is neither male nor female or else God is both, he and she. But God is not one of those things. God is not one gender. So we use pronouns to refer to God but they can't even come close to who God really is. So the ancients understood God as expansive, as transcendent and imminent, as so far away that we can barely begin to understand God, and as so close to us that he is coming out of my breath right now. The ancients understood this, that God was present in creation and present in humanity, accessible to human beings and to all creation, but so different than us, expansive, mystery, but just one gender is only a partial expression of God's nature. And so I will say that everything about my role at Forefront, being ordained, all of that is made possible because Jen did it first. And Mm -hmm. I owe her a lot. Um, And I'm very sad she's going on maternity leave because don't know what I'm gonna do. (laughs) Because she was the one who was on staff first and weathered 
so many staff changes as a woman who was leading in our church and really made it possible for me to move forward in my own career because she did it first. And what Laura talks about in in stressing that we recognize that we stand on the shoulders of other women and then also saying we need to be those people that that make it possible for someone like Mira to come in because you came on, I would say maybe nine months after I did, making it possible for you to come up too. Mm-hmm. And and it's really just this this chain of other other women. Well, I know I'm really thankful we have other women, other women in leaders in leadership at our church because I don't know if I could have fulfilled this role on my own. I needed to have Jen there to tell me, listen, the guys are going to say this and you need to speak up. You know, you don't tell them that I say those things to you, Mira. (laughs) Or no, they'll be there. They're all in the same room. They'd be in the same room and she'll give me that nudge and say, Mira, you want, she'll recognize, Mira, I know you want to say something, say it. And it took months for me to really just speak up and say, you know, oh, I just have this small idea I just want to put out there. And and she's the reason for that, you know, recognizing first that there was hesitation from my part. And because I feel like had I walked into this role being the only woman and adding on to that the only person of color, that's a lot of pressure. And you took some of that pressure off. Both of you women took some of that pressure off. And now I can focus. You can on focus being, on being the person of color. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, and that's so a lot sorry. of pressure in itself. Yeah. But if I had to do both, that's really difficult. Mm-hmm. And you guys paved the way for that. So I'm so thankful for that. So to be fair, though, um, I wasn't the first one uh, within Forefront. There. And I was just recently thinking about this, that for the past six years, I have had a steady group of women that I have continuously met up with in my life, and and they've changed who that group is over the years. But at that time, the time that I actually came on to staff, I was meeting every week for breakfast with a group of three other women um, who all are part of our church community. And one of them was this woman who who while over the course of that year that we were having breakfast together stepped off of staff and at the end of that year I actually stepped on um, she was the first person that said to me I think you should work in ministry and and it spoke into a little nugget I had in the back of my head that was like oh god I think I have to be in ministry um, but she was the first person that I the, said it out call. loud to <laughs> yeah sure we'll call it a call whatever um, <laughs> but uh so yeah, so she was there and that group of women was there consistently for me. And it's been different groups of women ever since. Um, recently, most recently, um, well, over the past year or so, it's been a little bit harder this past year, but a couple of years ago, I got introduced to a group of women who are lady pastors here in the city. One of them, you're going to hear a soundbite from in just a minute. But I actually got introduced to this group by one of my male colleagues, by Ben, and because he was specifically helping to find some mentors for me, and I really appreciate that about him, how he champions me in that way. And also, I think he was a little jealous because he secretly wants to be a part of this group. (laughs) Everyone does. (laughs) We call ourselves the Kick-Ass Lady Pastors, and we are a group of women who are lead pastors and associate pastors throughout New York City. We've got some friends that come in and out when they're in town as well. But it's been amazing for me because I had 
was just stepping up into the associate pastor role when I found them and was really feeling like I need some some women leaders to mentor me through this because I know that I don't do things the way the boys do. I had figured that out already, but I didn't know how I do do them. As in like, I'm very aware of when the guys give me advice and I'm like, that's bad advice. I'm not going to do your way. (laughs) But I needed to have some women in my life who said, well, this is the way that I do it. And so I could figure out for myself. Yeah, that resonates with me. And that's what I got from being a part of this group with these women who are specifically in ministry. Um, Little conversations that we would have while we would all get together. Just how we feel when we're the last person left at the event cleaning up the dirty plates while the guys are all having a good time or what it's like to be pregnant and preaching like all of these things they just come up naturally in conversation because we're all in the same field and it started to help shift and shape me and realize how I do things differently and it's just great because they do know a lot of the people that I work with we're part of the same networks and so when they see things that are unjust they call it out and they give me space to rant and rave and it's awesome (laughs) so I highly recommend to everyone who's listening to this that you get a group of women that you can be consistent with in that way, that you can have that space to digest and process because this is really tough stuff to figure out. Sexism and shame comes in really subtle forms. And it, like I said, it took me months to figure out how to work through the shame of being told that I was ornery, which really was I'm a leader <laughs> and that's what I was being shamed for. Um, that stuff seeps into you and affects the, the way you see yourself and the things that you think you can do. And if you don't have a group of women who are understanding that and helping you process that and are further along or even behind you, um, then you're going to have a really hard time understanding that maybe it's not always your fault or always on you or your shame to carry. Women, I think that we need to be the change makers when it comes to how perceptions of our ability to lead others is often influenced by how our bodies look. Um, I wonder how many of you have believed or maybe still believe that how a woman looks is as important as her character or competency or her ability to lead. Um, I feel like the presidential election process has maybe brought this into sharp focus. Um, Regardless of whether you're a Hillary supporter or not, the conversation often comes back to whether or not she has that presidential look, right? Um, But here's the thing, I think that this isn't just perpetuated by men at all. We as women have been trained to judge each other and perhaps most critically ourselves based on this body that we were each given. And I'm sorry to say that I, at a very young age, just swallowed this myth like hook, line, and sinker. And I spent um, so many years obsessing over whether I physically fit the part I was trying to play. And I... I worried about either not being attractive enough and therefore being dismissed, or being too attractive or too into my looks and therefore not taken seriously. Um, For us, it's awfully like a lose-lose on either end of those spectrums. And I didn't just judge myself this way. I have a lot of regret that I've spent many years judging other women um, in this same way. like not usually out loud, but still in my head and my heart, I was perpetuating the myth that looks are somehow indicative of character or ability. Um, 
So for the last several years, I've been doing a lot of hard work personally to extricate this belief system out of my soul and out of my heart. And I've done this through a couple of practices that I wanted to share with you. Um, the first practice is one of repentance, um, which is not a word I use very often, but the more I became aware of when those judgmental thoughts would come into my head, either about myself and my own body or somebody else's, I would consciously choose in that moment to say something different, just something different. And um, the second practice that I've done is, I don't know, I call it a gratitude body practice. Basically, I would um, kind of every day stop and think through, literally think through different body parts and why I'm grateful for them. So it might sound like, uh, I'm really grateful for my arms today because I got to hug my children. And I'm really grateful for these legs today because I got to hike or I was able to walk to my car or, you know, it, it, it almost never, when I would settle into that, it almost, my gratitude was almost never around how my body looked. Um, it was always around how I got to live my life um, in this body. And as I've done these two practices, compassion and acceptance for myself has just, it's flourished. And of course, then my compassion and acceptance and my ability to see other women for truly who they are has also increased exponentially. And so it's my hope that as more of us do this work and more of us reject what we're sold um, in magazines and all that kind of stuff, that we can really begin to change this damaging narrative and see ourselves and each other as women in leadership as our character and, and really who we are. I know for a lot of women, scripture is part of the reason why it's hard for them to imagine being in ministry. There are the sort of soundbite verses that keep us from doing things in the church. There's also just this vacuum of stories about female leadership but scripture really for me was the place where I started to imagine women doing things differently because I learned about the stories of Deborah and Huldah, these magnificent sort of stories that rise up out of the Old Testament uh, in a world where women were basically property. There are these stories that survived of God using women to do incredible things. And even in the New Testament where there are these hard passages about women being quiet, we learn that there were women who were telling the story of God in big, bold, loud ways. So we learn about Phoebe, who probably carried the letter of Romans and read it out loud for the first time, and Junia, who got called an apostle. And I just remember learning about Priscilla and how she, in her marriage, kind of taught and led uh, the early church. And just every story where Jesus runs into a woman and he bestows on them dignity and healing and power and so for me, scripture, when I started to read it more carefully, really expanded my imagination of what God could do, not just through women, but through all kinds of people. And when ministry is hard, and there are certainly days where being a woman makes it a little harder, because you get up and you do something that you think is powerful, and then all anybody really wants to talk about is your new haircut. Just silly things like being interrupted at meetings or being in a room where you sense that everybody's kind of questioning your legitimacy to be there, when it gets hard, the thing that kind of keeps me going is a conviction that the story that the church is telling needs to be told in a lot of different voices, that this is just the way this wild idea of God's works, is that God uses all people without limits. And so, when being a woman in ministry gets hard, one of the key sort of 
things that for me that keeps me going is just being motivated by the idea that I'm expanding somebody's imagination of what God can do through people, whether it's through a sermon or in a classroom or in a bar over conversation, just that truth comes through a lot of us in a lot of different ways and that the story of God needs to take on lots of different voices to really be complete and that a lot of what I'm doing may have sort of a very, it may go away pretty quickly, but at least one thing I've done is paint a picture for the women 10, 20, 30 years behind me that this might be possible, that God really could use you to do something big and beautiful. I think that when you grow up in sort of a, a household, the word that we use to refer to it, I guess, is a complementarian household where you believe that the man is the head and the woman is the helpmeet. Um, this sort of coordinating thing is the thing that is expected of you. It is expected of you to be the one that holds up the leader by doing all the things so that to, to sort of invisibilize your own work in order to make the leader look good. Um, and I think that I grew up in a world where that was very true, where the, the women in my life did a lot of work to prop up my dad's ministry, which he's very good at. It's not, I'm not saying that to degrade him, but they invisibilized their skills in order to give him the space as a leader to make his life easier so that he could do that leadership role. Um, and that's what I got used to. And I think that now I, I do, I spend a lot of time doing that prop up work and do have to ask myself questions about why I'm doing that. And, and what I want in terms of how I would really like my life to look if I do these things as a distraction and as a way to play, play with the people who are doing the leading because <laughs> I actually want to be one of them, um, but, but my opportunities are as coordinator. Um, so that's the thing I have to ask myself and to, to give myself the, the right and, and to um, step into those leadership roles whenever I can. You know, I, I struggle so much with this whole like lean-in concept and because... Sure, sometimes that's true or whatever, but like, I also am kind of, I mean, I'm one of these people, I think, who'd much rather say, I'll rally with the women and we'll make change that way. Like, I don't need to sit and lean into this culture that's not acceptable. How about we break apart the culture instead? Um, and we're in a position where we can do that. I can sit down with, with the staff and, and say to them, this is what was not all right about that. And I'll get heard and things will be changed. Um, and I'm very lucky for that. But I also pick and choose when I'm going to say those things in order to serve the cause. Um, I don't rant and rave. And I know that I have their respect. And I know that a large part of the reason why I have their respect is because I don't rant and rave. Um, I choose very specifically when I'm going to bring up things that need to be addressed. Hi, I'm Katie Hayes. I'm the pastor and lead evangelist of Galileo Church, which is a next church community in the suburbs of Fort Worth, Texas. It's a church that I founded about three years ago. But before Galileo Church, uh, I served for almost 20 years in traditional congregations, um, four different congregations in four different places in the U.S. Um, in each of those congregations, I was the first woman pastor, uh, not just to be hired, but in several cases that, that people in the congregation had ever seen or experienced. And so in all of those jobs, I was uh, preceded by men pastors. And in all of those jobs, I was 
was followed by men pastors when I left after five or six years. Um, two of those congregations were in fundamentalist evangelical churches, and two of those congregations were in the mainline Protestant church, of which I'm now a part. Um, and I think the feeling that's generated when you're the first or only woman that people have experienced in the pulpit uh, is a feeling of of gratitude, you know, on my part, that they have been courageous enough or generous enough or whatever uh, to give me a job. And it's kind of their hesitance around hiring a woman combined with my gratitude for having a job that leads to the reality uh, known as salary inequality. Um, and it, that's just such a real thing. I think we need to out that as an actual problem in churches, even the ones that practice equality for women in ministry. Um, that's really not the only metric we should be looking at, like whether you'll hire a woman. But will you hire a woman for this job um, on you know on par with the men that you would hire for the same position? Um, so in the last uh, two churches, congregations that I served before founding Galileo Church, um, I was actually told by search committees that I was a bargain, like that they were excited to get me because I was a bargain, meaning that they literally were not going to pay me as much as the man that preceded me in that position. Um, and in the last church I served, I know that I made thousands and thousands of dollars less than the man about 15 years my junior who came after, who, excuse me, who came before me. And I know for a fact that I earned tens of thousands of dollars less than the man who followed me in that job. So the period of time that I was their pastor, I, I really was a bargain. I was saving them lots of money. I don't know if it's because they assumed that I had a spouse, uh, you know, whose salary was the real salary in our family, um, assumed that my job was kind of a second job, more like kind of a, a hobby or an add-on <laughs> for me um, in our family. I'm not sure. It doesn't really matter. The thing is, it's sexist practice. Uh, it is so unfair. Um, and so, um, you know, we really have to be looking about looking at whether churches that hire women are doing that with comparable salaries for comparable education and experience on the part of the people that they're hiring. I really think that the only way this will happen is when uh, women take up advocating for themselves, and I mean women pastors, not waiting for the men or the women, frankly, in congregations to do that work for them, but but really um, knowing and then communicating what they believe they're worth in terms of education and experience. And the only way we can really do that is to uh, exercise some transparency around our own salaries with each other, colleague to colleague. we got to be able to tell each other what we're making, what we were making at early points in our career, mid points in our career, later in our career. we got to break the taboo around money because secrecy around money and salary always, always, always serves the interests of the institutions that we serve. And it protects the people in leadership in those congregations. And um, it definitely serves the interests of the persons, that is to say, our male colleagues, who benefit from that kind of unfair practice if we're not if we're not talking about it to each other. So I encourage women to to just tell each other what they make, not be embarrassed if it's higher or lower than your peers, and then to um, use that data 
uh, as a tool when you go into negotiations with a search team, um, a denominational body, a congregational uh, set of leaders, whoever is, is doing the hiring for you, and make sure that, that you are asking fair salary for the incredible work, the difficult work, the challenging and, yes, rewarding work of ministry that you're willing to do on behalf of the congregation that you serve and love and to whom, yes, you feel grateful for having given you a job. As we close out today's episode, we want to thank the panelists and the women in leadership who shared their thoughts with us today. You can find their names and more info on each of them on our Facebook page for Midrash NYC. And if you liked anything you heard today, then we want to invite you to join the movement and attend the She Is Called conference this May. Remember, this isn't going to be a typical conference. Sessions will be conversational. Content will form collaboratively. Everyone who identifies as a woman is welcome to join the conversation. It's our hope that you'll find your cohort, your network of women ready to support you. Come learn more at sheiscalledconversations.com. My name is Cameron Trimble. You know, I've, over the course of my career, met so many women who have felt a call to go into ministry, and uh, their story has really been one of tragedy and one of pain because they were connected to systems that uh, never affirmed that call in them. And then, even more tragically, uh, these women... uh, never questioned the authority of those systems. And I I have to say, I am so lucky, and I really recognize that uh, luck that I've had and the privilege that I've had, because I was born into a United Methodist family and uh, into a a mainline Protestant tribe uh, that had really kind of worked through or was working through uh, their issues around women in leadership uh, to the point that it just wasn't an issue for me. And so I uh, was was always really affirmed in my call. Um, Today I have my standing in the United Church of Christ, which has been one of the most extraordinary gifts. Uh, I've I've said, you know, once you're born Methodist, I think you kind of always stay uh, a little Methodist, but uh, the, the United Church of Christ has really become the denomination of my heart because of its commitment to radical inclusion and, and the welcoming of all people and the lifting up of those gifts. So it's, it's from that place and from that place of privilege and from that place of uh, being allowed to be in ministry and actually being celebrated in ministry from a very young age, frankly, that I want to say to all women who are listening to this podcast and to the men who uh, love them and support them and would affirm them, I'm asking you to lean in and to claim your own authority uh, and to recognize the calling that is yours, has always been yours, uh, to be faithful to whatever it is that God has called you to do, and to know that there are a whole lot of women who are serving in ministry today, uh, and frankly serving in every context today, who would really celebrate your uh, claiming that call of your life. So don't forget that you are wonderfully and remarkably made, and there are a lot of us uh, who want to support you uh, in your call as we ask you to support us in ours. And I think that's the gift of kind of this emerging sister movement, if you will, that's that's happening uh, in the United States and indeed across the world. What I especially give thanks for is that that isn't a movement just of women, but that uh, it's a movement of men and women who are recognizing that we live in a new day where all gifts are affirmed. So I am a woman in ministry. I've been a woman in ministry almost my entire life. And I would invite everyone who's listening to this, if this is your calling too, to claim it and live it boldly. 
If you're in the NYC area and looking for a church this Easter, consider joining Forefront Brooklyn. We have events happening April 8th through the 16th from an Easter egg hunt to Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Easter Sunday. Learn more at ForefrontNYC.com slash Holy Week. Midrash NYC is sponsored by Forefront Church in Brooklyn, a community cultivating a just and generous expression of the Christian faith in New York City. Sound engineering and music for this podcast was provided by The Astrolab. Organize your digital life at theastrolab.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.